I have a few fun slides to show you at the very beginning here. Uh, one of the things that's fun to do is to go around town and look at all the folks who've misspelled their signs. Uh, here's a few for you. Literacy night uh, at elementary school and uh, literacy is it misspelled in case you're missing that one, okay? That's how I would have spelled it. Yeah. <laughs> how about this one? Wash and vacuum senior citizens. Maybe not misspelled, but uh, <laughs> maybe a little bit of a mistake there. Uh, violators will be towed and fined $500. So that's not bad. I'll take that. Executive boardroom, which is usually what those are. <laughs> and then over $10 billion severed there at McDonald's. So. <laughs> and who hasn't experienced the autocorrect on your own phone? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. This one uh, sent you a text earlier this morning help you, telling you happy birthday. But a guest sent it to Andy by mistake. Sorry, good to talk to you. Bo sends you a wet, sloppy kids, too. <laughs> My dog sends me kids. I'm not ready to have kids. Mom, I need a man first. <laughs> Uh, I think I keep getting messages or missed calls or something. From who? Someone named Betty Lowe. Um, Battery Lowe? Oh, yeah, that's it. Last one. Love you, babe. Good night. My love for you is strong. I would buy you a casket if I could. <laughs> castle. I promise I'm at Castle. Autocorrect. Why do you have to ruin me? So, yeah. uh, today, we're going to talk about inerrancy, not mistakes. Mistakes are part of the human condition, aren't they? We all make them. Every single one of us. I've made many mistakes. But God never makes a mistake. And today we're going to talk about, let's see, here we go, inerrancy and infallibility. Since the scriptures are God-breathed, we talked about that last week, then the, since they are inspired by God, God himself gave them, that means they are without error. There is not an error in the Bible. That's why we're talking about today the inerrancy and infallibility of the Scriptures. Here we go. Definition of biblical inerrancy. And there's some note papers there. You can look on the church app and find this. Uh, you can fill these blanks in. The Bible is without error throughout, whether it is speaking historically, scientifically, morally, or any other way, really. Inerrancy this morning is the natural outworking, as I mentioned, of what we talked about last week, and that is plenary verbal inspiration. Plenary, all of it. Verbal, the words, and inspiration, meaning God-breathed. Because we believe that every word of Scripture is God-breathed, it must follow then that we have to believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. In other words, since God doesn't make a mistake, the Scriptures are without mistake. Take a look at Proverbs 30 and verse 5. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in Him. Now the word pure here is, has the idea of being tested and found without impurities. Um, in other words, you put fire to God's word to test it and you will discover that there is nothing wrong with it. It is pure all the way through. It's similar to what it says in the Psalms, Psalms 12:6. The words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. That is the word of God. Now, I'm going to tell you something real quick. I'm going I'm to explain a doctrinal truth that I learned from my mom when I was a child, okay? And she drilled this into my head. Is the Bible true? And I had to respond, yes. Every word is true. I can't just say yes. Uh, 
You say, yes, every word is true. Is the Bible true, Luke? Yes, every word is true. But then when I got older, as a teenager, I remember her blowing my mind one day. She told me, son, I actually want to clarify something. The Bible is not necessarily all true, but it is pure. And she's going to I said, I thought, you're going to have to explain yourself now, Mom. You've drilled this into my head. What are you talking about? The point is, think of it this way. Think of Job's friends in the Bible, the book of Job. All those things that Job said to, or the, his friends said to Job, are they all actually true things? No. Some of them are untrue statements. Uh, so don't read them as truth. Uh, same as the words of the devil in the Bible. Uh, sometimes the devil is speaking and it's, it's not true. Or Nebuchadnezzar, and it's not true. They may not be true words, but, but here's the difference. The Bible never presents them as truth. So in that case, that's why looking at, at Scripture in context is so very important. So really, what we're saying is this morning that when we say the Bible is inerrant or without error, what we're saying is that the Bible is 100% pure. It's pure. Not necessarily true in that sense, but it is 100% pure, no errors. Now just to clarify, when I, when I say this with children, I still say, is the Bible true? And I have them respond, yes, every word is true. And because I want them to go through the same confusion I did, all right? <laughs> but actually, it's pretty tough at a, at a young age for a child to get the concept of the true versus pure thing. So for now, as a child, it's good for them to have in their mind that the Bible is true. And in one sense, it really is. It's true. It is true in every sense. So we don't just hold to the uh, inerrancy of Scripture this morning. We also hold to the infallibility of Scripture. Let me explain that one. Here's the definition of infallibility. It was impossible for the writers to record an error of any kind as they penned the scriptures since they were under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So when we talk about inerrancy, we're talking about the fact that the Bible is without error. When we're talking about infallibility, we're talking about the impossibility uh, of error. We're talking about that it is actually impossible for God to make a mistake. Um, again, the scriptures are infallible because God is infallible. That is the reason. So all of these things, inerrancy, infallibility, just flows out of the nature of God. Hebrews 6.18, that by two immutable things, now immutable means unchanging. So that by two unchanging things in which it was impossible for God to lie. We might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Now, in context, this verse here, the two immutable things or the unchanging things it's talking about in this passage are God's promises and God's oaths or his vows. It's impossible for God to lie in his promises. It's impossible for God to make, a, make an oath but be telling someone a lie. And in everything else, it's impossible for God to lie or do anything wrong. Which means that every promise that he's made in the Bible will be accomplished. Every historical account is accurate. Every moral command is the standard of righteousness. Because it is impossible in God's nature for him to make a mistake. So, he is infallible, therefore the word is infallible. When we look at the 
inerrancy and infallibility, it's all based on the nature of who wrote it. It's all based on God who cannot lie. He cannot lie or make a mistake. So think about it. It's impossible to hold the position then that a perfect God wrote the Bible, but the Bible has errors. That's an impossible position. You cannot hold that. And some people, some of the liberal professors, even in Christian colleges, uh, question and critique the Bible and say certain parts aren't true, and they, uh, they pick it apart like they have the authority to do so. If you say that the Word of God has errors, then what you've done is you've impugned the character of God. Uh, it's like saying that God is incompetent or God is a liar. And let me just give you something that Charles Spurgeon said about actually this verse it is impossible for God to lie and somebody saying that God could lie. Now, brethren, he said, who among us dare doubt this? Where is the hardy sinner who dares come forward and say, I impugn the oath of God? Oh, but let us blush the deepest scarlet. And scarlet is but white compared to the blush which ought to mantle the cheek of every child of God. To think that even God's own children should, in effect, accuse their heavenly Father of perjury. Oh, shame upon us. And shame upon any person, any professor that would take a young person who has grown up in a church, and this happens all the time, a young adult who has grown up in the church and learned about the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture, and then they go to a, a Bible college even, and then some liberal professor gets a hold of them and makes them doubt everything that they've ever learned. That, that professor should be ashamed of himself, and he knows better. Now let me again be clear on all of this. When we're talking about the fact that the Bible is 100% accurate, and there are no errors, the infallibility and the inerrancy of Scripture... We're, talk, we're saying that it applies to the original autographs, the original uh, paper, <laughs> the original, not paper, animal skins, whatever it may have been, with that pen that God spoke to Moses or David. Those original pieces, they are 100% without error. But the copies that we have today are incredibly accurate, but they are still copies. And we understand that. Uh, there are a few minor scribal errors in copying, in the copying, but none of doctrinal consequence. And we're going to be talking about that over the course of the next few weeks, and I'll give some today too. But, and we really know that, that the, that the copies are incredibly accurate to the original because of the vast amounts of copies that we have to compare. And we see it all together, and we realize it's, it's, it's perfectly in balance. So as we talk about inerrancy, there are a few things to keep in mind. And by the way, in my opinion, I think this was a wisdom of God. God could have preserved the actual original documents that were written. He could have done that. But why didn't he? I don't know for sure. But when I think about it, I know how what human nature is like. And I think maybe if we had those, those would be worshipped. Those documents themselves would be, would be objects of worship. Oh, this is, the, this is the actual ink, you know, that, that David used. And, man, people would just bow down to those things. And so God knows what he's doing. But as we talk about inerrancy, here's, inerrancy there's a few things to keep in mind. And first of them is the relationship uh, with authority that inerrancy has. So here's the importance of inerrancy and believing inerrancy uh, as a church. If the Bible is not inerrant, then... Here's the question. Who is going to tell us which parts are true and which parts are an error? 
<laughs> what all-knowing person out there is the authority on deciphering the scriptures? Is it the theology professors at Oxford University? Is that the university we're going to listen to? Is it the Baptists? Is it the Pentecostals? Who is it? Who gets to say which parts are true and which parts are not true? And you know, that's how it used to be for many people. The Catholic Church used to control what you heard from the Bible. In fact, it was uh, against the law for the Bible to be translated in, in, in any other language than Latin. Uh, we don't even realize, sitting here this morning, the sacrifice that was made for us to have the Bible in English. Uh, the Catholic Church felt that only they could tell you what was true or not true, and they're going to withhold information. If you get a hold of the Scriptures, you're going you're to think what you want to think, and that's not good. But thank the Lord for people, courageous people like William Tyndale. William Tyndale, who burned at the stake for translating the Bible into English. Burned at the stake so that we could have a Bible in our language. You know, when it comes to authority, it's not the Catholic Church and it's not any other church. It's, uh, it's not any university. It's not any professor. God wrote the Bible. So no man has the authority to say which parts are true and which parts are not true? Nobody can pick and choose. You can't, you, 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 it's not a smorgasbord, as people have said. It's not a buffet. You don't get to say, oh, I'll take, the, I'll take the meat and I'll take the dessert, but not the salad on the Bible. No, thank you. I don't like this verse. It's not true. You don't get to do that. This is God's word. We take all of it. Then there's the relationship between inerrancy and interpretation. Oh, by the way, there's a, a drawing of uh, William Tyndale. Inerrancy and interpretation. Now, believing the interpretation or the inerrancy of Scripture is vital to proper interpretation of the Bible. Um, think about it. If you read the Bible tomorrow morning, you get up in the morning and you read the Bible, and the whole time you're doubting whether or not it's true, uh, what's that going to do to your Bible reading? Well, you're not going to get anything out of the Bible. It's going to be like how I read the news in the morning. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. Um, you, when you read the Bible that way, you rob yourself of all the benefits of the Bible. You can't read the Bible like that. If I'm sitting there questioning everything, this may not be true, this may not be true, how am I ever going to learn anything? Or how am I going to grow spiritually? It's impossible to grow spiritually if you don't believe the inerrancy of Scripture. How does, how does the Bible change somebody's life? You have to accept every word as God's word. Once you accept, okay, every word that's coming down, this is God. This is not just some ancient writing. It's not just some poetic book. These are actually words from the mouth and the heart of God. That's the only way anybody can actually change through the word. Here's an example, John 3.16. If John 3.16 is 100% true, if God said that, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's either true or not true. And if that is true, then just think of all the ways that that impacts my life. I no longer fear death. I don't, I don't ever have to fear death because I'm, I have eternal life. That's what that verse says. I no, longer, uh, have to live, I no longer live for temporary things because there's an eternal mindset now. I no longer believe in the gods of this world and give myself to the things that everybody else gives them to, gives, gives themselves to. I have a new love for God because He first loved me. And there's a host of other things just in that one verse that actually transform how I live, how I think, 
how I do life. But if I doubt the inerrancy of John 3.16, if I think that maybe there's an error in there, then that's never going to make a difference in my life. That verse never even touches me. So that's why the inerrancy of Scripture is such an important doctrine. I want to share with you something. In George, you know George Foreman, the, the boxer? He wrote a book called God in My Corner. And he said, uh, he, here's what he said. In 1974, in this book, he said, In 1974, before I went to Africa to fight Muhammad Ali, a friend gave me a Bible to take along on my trip. He said, George, keep this with you for good luck. I believe the Bible was just a shepherd's handbook, probably because the only verse I knew was the Lord is my shepherd. But I was always looking for luck, so I carried that Bible with me. I had lucky pennies and good luck charms, so now I added the lucky Bible to my collection of superstitious items. After I lost the fight, I threw the Bible away. I never even opened it. I thought, the Bible didn't help me win, so why do I need it? I thought I'd get power simply from owning it. I didn't realize that I needed to read it and believe what it says. Since then, I've come to understand that the Bible is my roadmap, not my good luck charm. <laughs> Amen. The Bible is our roadmap. That's why we have to believe it's inerrant. If, <laughs> if you get a map and you don't believe that it's, if you believe that it could be false, you're never going to follow the map. But if, if we believe it's true, We'll follow it and be blessed by it. Now, inerrancy and interpretation, but you know, you're, you're, you're going to hear someday, somebody at work, a neighbor, a family member, somebody say, yeah, the Bible, but what about all the contradictions in the Bible? What about all those errors that, that are in there? And you can be sure of this when somebody says that to you, that no book has had to go through the kind of criticism the Bible has gone through. There is no book on the face of this planet that has been dissected more than the Bible. And that has been and, and people hoping to find out something that they can accuse it of, of being false. So inerrancy and contradictions. Let's talk about that. And again, let me remind you, those people that claim that there are contradictions and errors, uh, almost all of them have never taken the time and effort to actually confirm their claim. They're th throwing that out there with zero uh, knowledge. But maybe for those of you that bring a legitimate question about some of the things they might see, there are always satisfactory answers. And most of the supposed contradictions that are in the Bible or errors just need a follow-up question. You need to apply one of these questions to it and, uh, and you'll have an answer. It could be one of these questions or maybe even another question, but here's the most common ones. First question, is it the language of appearance? Is it the language of appearance? Somebody brings a, an error to you, you need to ask the question, well, is that just a language of appearance? Here's an example. This is an error that the skeptics might bring up. Le Isaiah 11:12, And he shall set up an ensign for the nation, and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel, and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Okay, aha, isn't the Bible saying here that the earth is flat? Four corners? The Bible is false. Well, the Bible's not making a mistake any more than a weatherman says that the sun is setting at this time or the sun is rising at this time. The sun's, sun doesn't rise or set. Uh, the sun is st stands still. And this is the language of appearance. Uh 
we see what it appears, and then the language is based on just how it appears. Now, biblical inerrancy does not demand that the Bible has to be as precise as possible on every little thing. That's not what we're saying by inerrancy. We all use imprecise language, and that is normal. And God uses that. There's a lot of language of appearance in the Bible. Do we expect God to say, if, if, if God says um, someone in the Bible is 29 years old, d- does God have to say he's 29 and 15 days old? Because 29 years old can be a range of things. For It's still the truth. It doesn't have to be as precise on every little detail to give the meaning and give the truth. When the Bible does not claim to be precise, then we accept the imprecision as uh, a part of God's inerrant word. It was God's choice to use it, uh, the language of appearance in this place. And God can do that uh, and still... We could still call the Bible inerrant. The next thing is, is it copious error? Another question to pose to a supposed contradiction or an error, is it a copious error? Again, remember, when we speak of inerrancy, we're speaking about the original autographs. We admit that there have some, been some minor mistakes in the copying along the way. The manuscripts aren't all 100% to the T, Perfect. But let me give you some examples of some of the differences that you might see. They are extremely minor. Uh, 2 Chronicles 22. Forty and two years old was Ahaziah when he began to reign, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. Now look at 2 Kings 8, 26. Two and twenty years old was Ahaziah when he began to reign, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. Aha! A contradiction. Was Ahaziah 42, or was he 22? Which one was he? Now again, most likely one of the scribes who was sitting there copying word for word with his hand, uh, he made a quick lapse in, ju- in concentration. One of the scribes caught it. In another copy, we see it, and the other one didn't. Because here's the deal. If Ahaziah was 42 years old, if you read the passage, if he was 42, he would have been older than his father. So, of course, he wasn't 42. He was 22 in this case. But it's easy to point out that, okay, that's just a scribal move of the pen. Second uh, Chronicles 9.25, And Solomon had 4,000 stalls for horses and chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Well, First Kings says, And Solomon had 40,000 stalls for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Again, a slight slip of the pen. You know, you just dipped it into the ink and you have a little <laughs> 40 and 4. Man, that's very similar. Minor, minor errors. But here's what we can do. We, we can get the thousands and thousands of manuscript evidence. We can put them all together. You can look at everything, and you can compare them, and we can be very competent, uh, confident that these kind of errors are extremely few in number, first of all, and the errors that were made do not affect any major beliefs or any uh, essential doctrines whatsoever. In fact, they don't even touch essentials. It's all little minor things like this, uh, numbers or things like that. So, the, uh, the Bible is completely inerrant. Now, the next thing we need to ask is, somebody brings to us a, uh, a supposed error, well, what does it mean in the original language? You know, some of the discrepancies that they might have are based in the, in the original language, and you need to look at it a little deeper. Most people won't. Matthew 13, 32, which indeed, Jesus said, 
is the least of all seeds. Remember Jesus talking about the mustard seed. And He said, this mustard seed is the least of all seeds. But when it is grown, it's the greatest among herbs. People say, aha! There are smaller seeds than the mustard seed. Jesus made a mistake. Did Jesus really make a mistake? Do you think Jesus didn't know that there are smaller seeds than the mustard seed? Really, first of all, uh, living in the place that they lived and knowing who he was, and uh, is it even possible? For this, you need to look a little deeper into the original language, Greek in this case. The word least is a comparative word, and it could also be translated this way, smaller. The smaller of the seeds. In other words, what Jesus was saying, he was putting mustard seeds in a category of seeds. He was saying it was one of the smaller seeds. And so in, he wasn't claiming that the mustard seed was the absolute smallest of all seeds ever. He was just saying it's, it's in the category of very small seeds. You know, another question we could pose is, is it an exact quotation or is it a summarization? For example, some people are really disturbed that Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is much shorter in Luke chapter 6 than it is in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. You have a long version but here's what we need to think about. Perhaps Jesus was preaching uh, this message in two different times, in two different locations. It doesn't say exactly, so it's very possible that it was just the same message given differently. Or, Luke, when he was writing it, he could have been summarizing the message instead of giving exact quotations. You know, unlike English, in the Greek... Uh, the Greek language doesn't use quotation marks. And so, uh, since it doesn't use quotation marks, it doesn't claim word-for-word -word precision. But as people who believe in, in the inerrancy of Scripture, it's easy to understand and easy to, to grasp, this is how God wanted it. This is how God wanted it. The Holy Spirit guided the writers to use summarizations. And... While using summarizations, they can still accurately convey everything that God wanted to convey. They didn't have to use word for word every single time. That's not, um, that's not necessarily what God planned or wanted. So the, the definition of inerrancy allows for both exact quotations and summarizations, and they both are equally accurate. And God allows for all that. And lastly, a question that we need to pose to somebody who brings up a supposed contradiction or an error, is, is that a complementary account of the same event? Uh, let me explain this one this way. I, I love, I actually just really get a kick out of how husbands and wives tell stories differently. Uh, a, husband, uh, a husband will say, you know, two months ago we were driving by and we saw this accident on the road and the wife went, no, 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 it wasn't, it was two and a half months ago. Okay, sorry, two and a half. So they'll either start fighting or one just might continue on, you know. But anyway, he says, uh, anyway, there was this blue truck that wrecked into this little car and, and she interrupts and says, hey, and this lady with blonde hair was standing out there. She had really nice shoes, but she was talking on the phone and, and then she was, looked really stressed out. And, and, and uh, But you hear that story, but you're, completely different versions. I mean, literally, it could almost sound like two different things that took place, but it's the same event. 
It's just two people telling different details. Now, is either one lying? No. Neither one is lying. They're both telling the truth. It's just they're bringing out different things. But the husband was supposed to be <laughs> yeah. It's not... Uh, this kind of thing happens. This kind of thing happens, and it happens quite a bit in the Bible as well, especially in the Gospels, where they're all telling the life story of Jesus, all four of them. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 and 2 tells us that, um, or Matthew records that there, were, there was one angel at the tomb. There was one angel at the tomb. Uh, and then in John 20, John says that there were two angels there. Is that a contradiction? No, only, it's only a contradiction if Matthew would have said that there was only one angel. He said there was one angel, but he, he didn't say only one angel. In telling the story, Matthew was focusing on the one angel who spoke while John was given the total number of angels that Mary saw. He was, he was putting it in Mary's view. So these are not contradictory stories. They're complementary, actually. Uh, two different versions of the same account. And the variations in story actually, in this case, make it more believable. Uh, it, it tells us that there was no collusion. There was no Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John didn't get together in a room and say, all right, we're going we're gonna to start a religion. And we've got we to make sure that every word that we say is perfect because nobody will believe us if we don't, if we don't do it just right. Now, there was none of that. They wrote as God told them to write, and, uh, and God brought it all together. It's actually a more believable story. You want to hear some variation. And here's the point of all this. All these things, these answers to the contradictions. The Bible has been through every conceivable test. These and, so, and many, many more. And every time it goes through a test, it always comes out the same way. It is the pure Word of God. Psalm 12, 6, again, the words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth. And yes, they have been tried and tried and tested and tested and burned and burned and burned, and they always come out pure. The truth is, today, the men do not reject the Bible because it contradicts itself. They re reject it because it contradicts them. And that is the truth. And lastly, I want to talk about something that's closer to my heart, and that is inerrancy and Jesus. Is the Bible with, really without error? Should we believe all those crazy, supernatural stories, for example, in the Old Testament? A person getting eating, eaten by a fish and then spit back up. A person turning into a pillar of salt. And the list goes on and on with some strange stories in the Old Testament. Are they legends? Are they true accounts? Well, here's the thing. Jesus himself authenticated the passages that have been the most challenged uh, on accuracy. Let me give you a quick list. Matthew 12, 40, Jesus talked about Jonah and the great fish. Matthew 12, he talked about repentance in the city of Nineveh. Matthew 19, the creation and marriage. So creation, Jesus upheld creation. All these people that say, oh, I don't know if God created the world. Hold on. If you are a Christian and you follow Jesus, Jesus upheld creation just as it's written in the Old Testament. And he also upheld a marriage between a man and a woman. He, he said, God made them male and female. And he brought them together. 
Jesus believes in a man and a, a male and female marriage. The flood. Jesus upheld that. Destruction of Sodom. Lot's wife turned into a pillar of salt. Miraculous healing of Naaman's leprosy. The brazen serpent of Moses. Jesus upheld every single one of those. He, he spoke of them as they were completely 100% accurate, and they are. If Jesus, who rose Himself from the dead, if Jesus, who rose Himself from the dead, takes the Bible as accurate, so do I. I have no problem with that. Personally, for me, this is the strongest witness in my heart that everything the Bible says is true. If, if Jesus accepts the inerrancy of Scripture, I have no problem accepting it. If, if the Apostle Paul accepts it, I have no problem accepting it. I want to encourage us today, really, to just make a fresh commitment to believing every word. And every word, and just reconfirming that, God, I trust your word 100%. And every word in the Bible is inerrant, and every word is infallible. And I want to leave, leave us with this statement from James Packer that I think really sums up what we really need to confess in our hearts this morning. For me to confess that Scripture is infallible and inerrant is to bind myself in advance to follow the method of harmonizing and integrating all that Scripture declares without exception. I must believe that it is from God. However little I may like it. And whatever change of, of present beliefs ways and commitments it may require. And I must actively seek to live by it. See, that is the demand. If we claim to live and believe, excuse me, the inerrancy of Scripture, we have to accept this. It is God, and we may not like certain parts of it. It may rub us wrong. It may tell us to change certain ways we're believing right now. It may tell us to change certain ways we're thinking right now. And But the only consistent thing we could do is to say, God, I will actively seek to live by it. If this is your word, and I believe it, the only consistent thing we can do is to obey it. Let's make a commitment to that right now. Lord, I pray.